Palmer's Hairy London, episode 30. The last thing the pearly king said to Jeremy was, We gonna push on, capture Whitehall. Them ministers are idiots. I want you on my side. Help me like. I trust you. But if you betray me, I hang you. Jeremy pondered his situation for some time before deciding he had to return to the Pearlies. It was a risk, but he needed to convince them that his account of the soldier numbers was correct, so that the Pearlies would not attack Whitehall. He wanted the stalemate to continue, to give him and Juinefere more time, but he felt low. He knew his chances of success were slipping away. So he walked to the front line in the Strand. And then, in the crowd by the pearly marquee, he saw Velvine Orchard Tide. He stared at the man. Velvine's clothes were torn and filthy, worn like old sacks, with no style. His hair was spiky with grime, his skin grubby. But most extraordinary of all, he was unshaven. Velvine was a stickler for shaving, never missing his morning appointment with the razor. Velvine, he cried out, running up to the man. Velvine, dear fellow, what in the name of all the Kashmiri shrines are you doing here? Velvine's mouth opened, did not shut. He stared, then said, Pantomile, what in the name of Grandma Zoo are you doing here, eh? Jeremy took Velvine by the arm and guided him to a quiet alley free of cockneys. He said, I can't believe it. You, dear fellow, after all this time, and here, of all places. Are you hale? Well, I am surviving, surviving. Uh, and you? Managing. They looked at one another, then grinned and hugged. Velvine said, Surely you do not have connections with the uprising, Jeremy? Jeremy hesitated before answering. I'm in touch with the government, trying to stop the army and the uprising fighting it out down Charing Cross Road. There'll be hell and slaughter, and London will be ruined. The government is run by idiots, Velvine said, with a vehemence that surprised Jeremy. Pondering what Velvine might have been up to in recent months, he said, You sound like you've been through the wars, Velvine, dear fellow. Well, I have. Down Felton Way. Terrible, terrible. Tell me all about it. Velvine did so, relating a story almost too incredible to be true, and concluding with the tale of Orchard Tide Manor. Jeremy listened to him with full attention, his mind whirling as he put together the hints and clues dropped. It seemed without guile, by Velvine. And as the story concluded, he realized that Velvine Orchard Tide formerly a scion of one of the richest families in England, had gone through a transformation much like his own, except Velvine's was more radical and more dangerous. The word Marxist had not yet been used, but Jeremy could feel which way the wind was blowing. And then, as Velvine related the tale of the dragon slaying, something clicked in Jeremy's mind. The hair inside the house fell out, you say? 
Felvine nodded. Yes, it did, and then I was away. Lilibet vanished, and I took the Chocolate Express to London. Jeremy put his arm round Velvine's shoulder and walked him into still quieter passages. He said, Who is this Lilibet? Well, uh, she was a lady. A lady for a... Uh, spit it out, old chap. Velvine shuddered, as if enduring some private mental torment. At last, he said, She was a friend of mine, of the lady type, many, many years ago. Why she was at Orchard Tide Manor, I don't know. Well, I never asked her. And, dear fellow, in those earlier times, did Lilibet respond to your declarations of friendship? Again, he screwed up his face. I cannot remember. I cannot remember. What is wrong with my memory, Sherby, eh? Have I become so different a man? Steady on. You're with a friend now. Jeremy said. Yes, I am. A good friend. Indeed, a good colleague also. To give himself time to think, Jeremy took the packet of cucumber sandwiches that he was planning to have for lunch and handed them over, along with a silver bottle of gin. Velvine ate like a famished man. And Jeremy thought the orchard tides were a family of eccentricity of bizarre behaviour, of occasional madness. Velvine's mother was a notorious religious zealot. His father was as mild as a spring breeze, while his two brothers were remote, cold and unhelpful clergymen. Velvine, everybody at the suicide club said, had got the bitter end of the sweet stick in that family. A loner, a man of intellect, but a man of emptiness. Courageous, yes, but somehow lost in the world, like a child. Was it possible that Velvine himself had created Harry London? The evidence of Orchard Tide Manor suggested so, as did the tales of Freud, Young, and all the rest. Jeremy found himself considering the possibility that he'd discovered the bargaining chip he required. Of utmost importance, therefore, was Velvine's safety and well-being. My dear fellow, he said, I feel for you most strongly. Listen, I've got a suggestion to make. I don't want the government to win this war, but neither do I want the Cockneys to slay thousands of Britishers in civil strife. Well, nor do I. Why not stay a while at my house in Gough Square? There you can rest and consider all you've been through. Sounds good, don't you think? It sounds very good, eh? Jeremy's heart leapt. Damn, that was the correct answer. Then allow me to help you there at once. Come along. Hurrying east as fast as he could, Jeremy helped Velvine through the press of war, the hair, the debris and detritus until he stood in a thicket of brown hair at the east end of Fleet Street. Not wanting Velvine to walk up Chancery Lane, too much risk of him thinking about the suicide club, he led the way into Shoe Lane, then through passages into Garth Square. His house was cold, dark and damp, but after half an hour he had a blaze going in the front room fireplace, 
had closed curtains and lit candles and had put the latest Cauliflower Johnson 78 record on the monogram and served Velveen whiskey and soda. It's Scotch, he said. My valet, now deceased, alas, was from Glasgow. Velveen nodded. A decent of you to put me up here. What are friends for, dear fellow? Now, drop your feet right onto this stool and sit back while I rustle up some food. Jeremy hurried into the kitchen. It was devoid of food. Desperate, he slipped out of the back door and clambered over fences until he stood in the rear garden of Benry Halloway Tong. Tapping on the window, he managed to attract the attention of Benry's wife. Semiotica, dear lady, he said, I simply must ask you to help me. Do you have any small bits of food I could borrow? I've got a most important guest at my house, and he must be fed. We have little enough ourselves, she replied. But it's crucial, Jeremy insisted, allowing his anxiety to show through. Semiotica, I swear I'll go out scavenging for you and dear Benry as soon as possible to replace every morsel you can spare. You must assist me. No, very well. Semiotica disappeared into her kitchen, returning with potatoes, carrots and a turnip, which she placed into a bag. Sharami said, You have no meat? Meat, she chuckled. Meat, Sharami? In hairy London? Where have you been these last months? Jeremy nodded. You are correct, as ever, dear lady. Thank you for this. Back in his kitchen, he prepared the vegetables as best he could, guessing for the most part what ought to be done, then dropped them into a pot to boiling water. All he could think of was to make vegetable stew. From his own garden he took a lone onion, a leek, and a handful of what he thought might be runner beans, which he also dropped into the pot. Soon have some vegetable broth ready, he told a half-asleep Belvine. Belvine snorked and muttered, oh, Eh, what? A supper, is it, eh? The stew turned out well, though it was rather thin, but it was hot and nutritious. Jeremy encouraged Velvine to sip whiskey, until the man, his stomach full of food and alcohol, and his mind soothed by Jeremy's collection of dance band 78s, was on the verge of sleep. Then Jeremy took a blanket, constructed a makeshift bed from Velvine's chair and three stools, and let him drift off into slumber. He ran as fast as he could through the hair of Chancery Lane to Bedwood's house, where Gentleman Smythe stood atop the steps. Sir, Gentleman said, the Lady Bedwoods. I know, I know, Jeremy panted. I'm going to see her now. Gasping for breath, he ascended the stairs to the upper floors, where he found Schwinnefier attending to her own supper, bruised jellyfish on a bed of peanut rookery. Genevieve, he cried as he panted for breath, I have extraordinary news. Shocked by his sudden appearance, she stood up and hurried across the room, grasping him by the arm and guiding him to a chair. 
"'What is it, Jeremy, dear?' she asked. "'Velveen Orchard Tide. "'I think he made hairy London. "'And I have him asleep at my place down at Gaff Square. "'Orchard Tide? "'But how and why?' "'Jeremy shook his head. "'I don't know exactly, "'but the man created a hairy version of his own mansion up at Tring, "'then unmade it when it killed the dragon.' The dragon? His mother. You remember that mad woman who thinks she's head of the church? Oh, her. Yes, her. But, Jeanfier, I think I've got the answer to our dilemma. The answer? He stood up and clasped her shoulders so that she peered up into his eyes. He said, The key to all of this is Lilibet Spoonworthy. We've got to get Velvine and Lilibet together as soon as possible. All this hair is a response to Velvine's mental stresses and strains, to his entire life. I'm sure he's responsible. But what do we do? We find Lilibet and kidnap her, then take her to the Pearlies. And then? Jeremy grinned. Shrenifier, right now, what I need is your most striking diamond ring. I'm going to put it inside Velvine's pocket. Cornucope sat alongside Lord Gorge, Lord Blandhubble, and the rest of the cabinet in the Primrose office, along with others of the government, each of them seated at the long table that had for so many decades been at the heart of government discussion. But today... Cornucope knew the discussion was of a most delicate nature, for also in the Primrose office was Misanthropa Mahavishnu, who had just arrived. Lord Gorge frowned at the Hindu doctor, clearly annoyed at his presence. You say you have vital news, what? Is it so vital it disturbs our war cabinet? We do have an uprising. Prime Minister, Misanthrop interrupted. I am working for you, and if I have vital news, then my news is vital. Oh, tell us all, if you bally well, master, just hurry up and tell us what. Misanthrop said nothing. He looked around for a chair, saw one, then carried it to the table, seating himself next to Cornucope. Cornucope grunted and moved his chair away a few inches. Misanthrop smiled and said, Lord Gorge, I have the Shiva emitter in my power, including the carrier of the activation word that Lord Shiva himself has divulged. My news is of a bargain that you should make with me. A bargain? I'm Prime Minister of the whole damn country, you curry-coloured idiot. Kornika winced, but Mesanthrop was so confident he ignored this insult. He replied, you will guarantee home rule in Hindu, and I will hand over the activation word. With the Shiva emitter, you can destroy the Cockney uprising in its entirety, saving your precious London town, losing not one man of your marvellous red-coated British army. And I have little doubt, guaranteeing your own re-election for some years to come. Not to mention quelling the working classes of the East End for generations. Isn't that the kind of bargain you'd like? 
"'You are a fiend and a cad, what?' Lord Gorge replied. Cornucope glanced at Lord Blandhubble, then back at Lord Gorge. It was clear that the offer was tempting, and, he had reflected, so it should be. But then came a commotion at the door, and a burly gentleman in a pinstripe suit entered. "'Sir,' he said, addressing Lord Gorge, "'there's been another intruder.' He beckoned to somebody standing in the corridor outside, and Cornucope was astonished to see Estatia enter. He leapt to his feet. "'What are you doing here?' he asked her. Estatia did not look pleased. "'And you?' she replied. "'Hobnobbing with your cronies, Cornucope?' Cornucope blinked. Sometimes her manner allowed him no leeway. Slowly he replied, "'Dearest one,' We should not differ over policy, Lord Gorge interrupted. If you don't mind, old chap, we have a war to discuss, what? Your personal life can wait. No, no, Misanthrop said. This is important. Mr. Weatherby here is the spouse of this lady, and this lady carries your activation word. He smiled at the Prime Minister. That is, if you want it. Of course I want it, but you want your damnable home rule. It is not much to ask. Not much to ask? It's a chunk of the king's empire. Misanthrop scowled. In a cold voice, he replied, It is our country, and you'd better give it back. Lord Gorge said nothing. He looked at Estatia and said, What is this activation word? It has been transmitted in its entirety from the Shiva emitter. Misanthrop replied, which is now useless without it. It exists upon Mrs. Weatherby. I can see it now. My bargain is this. I write down the word for you. You give in to its home rule. Write it down? Then what? You force Mrs. Weatherby to speak it when you want the Shiva emitter to do its work. I shall let you decide the method. Cornucope shuddered. No! he said. You will not torture my wife. And I won't say the word, said Estatia. Oh, you will, Misanthrop told her. You would be amazed to learn what the British government will do in pursuit of its goals. Or perhaps you would not be amazed, for you are, after all, an Hindu lady. He glanced at Cornucope. Normally they work on the spouse. Lord Gorge spluttered. Perhaps... Misanthrop continued, the foreign secretary would hand you and your husband over to the army. I believe they specialize in torture. That is enough, Lord Blandhubble warned. What then is your reply to my offer? said Misanthrop. Nobody spoke for a while. Lord Gorge stared at the table before him, beads of sweat rolling down his forehead. Lord Blandhubble puffed at his pipe. Cornucope said nothing. Every decision he could imagine would be the worse for him and Estatia. He sat motionless, silent, and powerless. And then Estatia leapt forward, bent down to the table, and grabbed the letter opener laid next to Lord Blandhubble's writing pad. She raised it to her head. Misanthrop stood up, sending his chair flying into the wall. No, he cried raising both his hands and shaking them. Don't do it! But 
before anybody could move. Estatia raised the letter opener and cut open her forehead to the bone, from the left temple to the right. Blood gushed out over the table. Calmly, she took a headscarf from her handbag and pressed it to her forehead. Misanthrop fell to the floor, his hands trembling, his face blanched, murmuring, No, no, no! What have you done, woman? Lord Gorge said. The only thing I could do, Estatia replied. Once I heard the device was useless without the word. Cut that word in two, she sighed, and seemed to sag, as if a great emotional burden had been removed from her shoulders. At once, Cornucope ran to her sister, and she, he was relieved to see, smiled at him and accepted his help. The word? What? Lord Gorge said. It's no longer here. No longer available. But... The door to the primrose office opened, and a runner sprang in. Prime Minister! he cried. The cockney uprising have called a parley in Trafalgar Square. They say they have the means to cure the plague and free London town of all the hair. Velvine woke up. He lay in a warm room, red coals in the grate, a smell of stewed vegetables in the air. He glanced out of the window to see that it was morning. Jamais, he said. He heard the sound of tapping feet, then the door opening as Jeremy walked in. How are you feeling, dear fellow? Velvine sat up, pulling away the blanket that covered him. Well, not too bad, not bad at all. We'll have some breakfast, Jeremy said. Then go back to the Cockney uprising. The uprising? Yes, we must support it. Where are they now, eh? This morning's time says it all, dear fellow. Velvine read the headlines of the Prophet newspaper. Cockney uprising reaches Trafalgar Square. A battle looms as British army squares up to Cockney hordes. Enormous loss of life feared on the Charing Cross Road. Great oats, Velvine said. Hurry up with that tea, eh? They finished the remains of the stew, drank their tea, then pulled on stout clothes and tough boots. Charmy led Velvine out, locking his front door with a grin. You're in a good mood this morning, eh? Velvine remarked. Capital, dear fellow. With no floating machinora to hand, they were forced once again to walk down Fleet Street in the Strand. But the sheer number of cockneys who'd passed that way, not to mention the vehicles and engines of war, and the West African hair methods, meant the journey was easy. Soon they approached the west end of the Strand and glimpsed one corner of Trafalgar Square. Velvine halted. It did not look much like a scene of war. Anything wrong? Jeremy asked him. Velvine tried to peer beyond the mass of people crowded into the western end of the Strand. Well, Trafalgar Square looks rather empty, he replied. There is something afoot, Jeremy. We'll walk on, Jeremy replied. With you at my side and I at yours, we've got nothing to worry about. Velvine considered this. Uh, true, he murmured, half convinced. They barged their way through the crowds, then entered Trafalgar Square. 
At once, Velvine saw something unexpected, a great white marquee, sighted beneath Nelson's column, from which both the Union flag and the Cockney standard fluttered. Again he halted. I do not like the look of this, he said. Cheremy took him by the arm. My dear fellow, he said, we aren't being shot at, so let's go and see what's going on. It looks to me rather like some sort of parley. Parley, eh? No, the revolution must not be stopped by parley. Jeremy laughed at this and led him on, but Velvine, his suspicions aroused, decided to leave the square once he had seen what was afoot. Now he stood at the flapping canvas door of the marquee, and he stopped and gasped, for inside he saw the most unexpected group of people he could ever have imagined. They sat at an oaken round table, Lord Gorge and three high-ranking members of his cabinet. Opposite them, the pearly king and pearly queen. Near the table stood a large wooden box, which shuddered from time to time, and from which a faint feminine voice sounded. Also present was Lady Bedwards, standing next to the box. The pearly king turned, then smiled. Jeremy, man, come in, yeah? Jeremy led Velvine into the marquee until they stood behind the pearlies. Uh, this is my very dear friend Velvine Orchard Tide, he explained. Lord Gorge scowled and banged his walking cane against the table. Will you people explain the meaning of all this? Have we been brought here to meet wastrels of the minor aristocracy? War looms! The pearly king sat up, leaning forward, his arms resting on the table. I know like in your attitude, man. You got to give us a bit more friendly. Just state your case, what? Sure, man, it is then. We want in an independent East End for ourselves, yeah? We got documents what we like to be presenting to you. The independence of the East End? Lord Gorge said. I'll die before that ever happens. Listen, man, here's the best of it. We know how to make all the air go away, so that London returning like it used to be. But Lord Gorge laughed. You know how to remove the hair? Preposterous, what? I'm wasting my time here with you fools. The pearly king frowned. I telling you the truth. We know how to do it. You really want to refuse that? What your people gonna say when they find out? Most of them starving, man, asking you for answers. Lord Gorge, incoherent, spluttered and said nothing. But Lord Blantable, shaking his head, said, oh, Let them have their fun, David. They're both deluded. Let them have their fun and then we shall set the army upon them and all this will be over. Lord Gorge also shook his head. My goodness, that my rule should come to this one, parleying with oaths and loons. So you think you know how to make the hair go away, do you? <laughs> Ducky boy! <laughs> he began chuckling, tears falling down his cheeks. I say, bland Hubble, they will put this on my gravestone, what? Your gravestone? 
it will be my blasted epitaph, what? He played games with the damned darky cockneys. Hesitantly, and with a certain reserve, the pearly king said, Then you will agree to independent East End if we is removing to hairy play, yeah? Oh, have your little game, Lord Gorge shouted. Yes, we agree, what? We agree in the name of the king. We even agree to Schwinnefear Bedward's wretched document, if you damned well insist. Red-faced with emotion, he stood up, but then his laughter turned to anger. Go on, then, he yelled. Work your darky magic. Are you a witch doctor, what? Going to snap some bones, kill a chicken, and pray to the cursed god of voodoo? The pearly king retained his composure. Velvine watched him turn, glanced at Schwinnefear, and then nod once. Schwinnefear unclasped the catch on the box and pulled open its front, and from it staggered Lilibet. Velvine wailed. He stared. Lilibet stared back at him. Velvine did not know what to do, what to say. This was surely some kind of dream world. Then, Jeremy took his right hand and moved it to his coat pocket. He felt something there, a small, cool object, quite heavy for its size. In a low voice, Jeremy said, Why not tell Lilibet what you feel inside, dear fellow? Velvine looked down to see a large diamond ring in his hand. Lord Gorge said, What the devil is going on here? Schwinnefear shushed him, one forefinger to her lips. Jeremy guided Velvine forwards, so that a few moments later he stood before Lilibet. Go on, dear fellow, Jeremy said. Tell her. Lilibet said, Tell me what? Why did you force me to come here? Velvine said, Lilibet, I believe I do have something to tell you. Yeah, yes, I do. I can feel it inside me. Like, like... What are you saying, Velvine? She replied. Lilibet, I, I love you. What? I love you. And I shall take you away from all this, I swear. Lilibet looked to her right, where Lord Gorge and his cabinet members sat. Then she looked at the Pearlies and at Jeremy. Red in the face, she raised her arm to point at him. You're on their side! Velvine glanced at the Pearlies. Well, of course I am. You're on their side, and you dare to tell me you love me? I will never walk down the aisle with you, Velvine Orchard Tide. Look at you, a grubby, greasy man on the wrong side. But never, 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 do you hear? Now, somebody take me away from this horrible tent. Velvine cried. But, Lilibet! She ran to Lord Gorge. Before anyone could move, a cockney sprang into the tent and yelled, The bleeding air is coming down! Everybody scrambled outside to see, and it was true. Trafalgar Square was filled from top to bottom with floating hair, falling off the National Gallery, from the walls of the Portrait Gallery, from Nelson's Column, from the sides of every building and from every pavement, whipped up by the wind into blonde clouds that floated into the sky. Velvine looked down at his feet. The blonde locks of the square lay flat, limp, fallen free of the stone into which they had been locked. 
He heard cheering coming from the cockneys lining the strand. Hair choked the pavements, filled the sky, fell in clumps from the walls of tall buildings all along that great street. He glanced up. The blue sky had turned blonde. Jeremy hugged him, shook him, tears falling down his face. You did it, dear fellow, he cried. You saved London town. Velvine found himself unable to comprehend. But, Lilibet, you said what you had to say, dear chap. That's what matters. It's not the end. I expect you'll come round to your way of thinking. And Velvine considered this, then replied. I don't think she will. Then the Pearlies walked up to Lord Gorge, and in full sight of all the uprising, leaders both shook him by the hand. The sound of church bells in distant steeples began to echo round the square. The Pearly Queen said, Thank you for agreeing. Thank you for averting the war. We looking forward to working with you, yeah? Lord Gorge stared, stunned into silence. The Pearly King said, Yeah, man, we thank you. We liken your style. Then he turned to the approaching Cockney Horde and shouted at the top of his voice, We won! We get the independent East End! Send out the brothers! Tell them to be spreading the word! We coming into us home, the king and the queen! A huge cheer erupted from the crowd, many of whom threw hats, gloves and other items of clothing into the air. Church bells could be heard ringing across London now in random, reverberant harmony. Lord Gorge, perplexed beyond his capacity to understand, said, But, uh, the pearly king turned and grinned. Too late for that, mister. You've been listening to the penultimate episode of Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson.